It comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So, it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Today, after a series seasons of Easter and Lent before that, Pentecost, and even not that long ago, Christmas really, today though, we celebrate our final special liturgical day that we will observe for quite some time. Following today, the liturgical color will be green as ordinary time makes its lengthy presence known. But today is Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday does not have the bravado and excitement of Christmas or Easter, even though it has the same color. It doesn't really, at least here, have the special traditions that we have for special liturgical days like Pentecost and All Saints Sunday. There is a good chance that uh, you woke up this morning and you had no clue that today was Trinity Sunday. What do we do for Trinity Sunday, one might ask? Well, it is itself a bit of a mystery, which might seem a little bit fitting, Trinity Sunday being a bit of a mystery because the Holy Trinity is a bit of a mystery. A holy mystery. Trinity Sunday reminds me of a story that I heard a while back. This is a story of a confirmation class. 
Not a confirmation class here, but a confirmation class in a Roman Catholic church. The class was preparing after a long period of working hard and studying for their examinations leading up to confirmation. When they found out that the person that would be giving them their examinations would be their archbishop. The arch, this archbishop was a nice man, but he was serious about doctrine. So they were, needless to say, as young confirmants, a little bit intimidated by the archbishop. The archbishop comes that day to give them their final examination as they hope to be confirmed into the church. Everyone in this confirmation class is lined up for their examination. They had studied hard and they are all praying that they would get the easy questions. The archbishop decides that to ask first what should be a simple enough question. He asks for a volunteer as he asks the whole group together, who can tell me the persons of the Trinity? All of the aspiring confirmands are frightened and they look down at their shoes and bite their fingernails and try to do anything to keep the archbishop from noticing them, as one might expect any of us to do or a nervous teenager might do when put on the spot. No one wants to be the first to answer. The archbishop waits patiently giving all of the confirmands a chance to step up and answer. But they don't. The archbishop then decides to do what gives them all nightmares. He decides to call on one of the confirmands to come up and answer the question. He calls, Thomas, tell me the persons of the Trinity. The shy and nervous confirmand, put on the spot, mumbles quietly as a mouse, as a nervous person might, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Archbishop says, I'm sorry, I could not hear you. Could you say that again? The boy lets out a frustrated sigh, nervous and anxious, a little bit louder this time, but still quite softly, he says, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even in the boy's slightly louder tone, the archbishop still could not hear him. The archbishop responds in a little bit of a frustrated tone himself, beginning to maybe raise his voice a little bit. I'm sorry, son. I do not understand what you are saying. The boy then rolls his eyes and raises his voice back and says, you're not supposed to understand it. The Trinity is a holy mystery. <laughs> the boy was right, and he may have deserved a bonus point or two for his confidence. The Holy Spirit is a holy mystery. That's often a fancy way that we might say we believe it to be true, though we might not completely grasp it or understand it. The word Trinity does not appear in the Holy Bible. That does not mean that the evidence of it is not there. It very much is. It simply means that it is a realized theology Christians have realized and developed over time. 
In the Great Commission found in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 28, Jesus makes a distinctly Trinitarian confession when he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Today, you would be hard-pressed to find a group of Christians, at least in the Western church, that don't claim to believe the Trinity. If you look around our sanctuary, many of the symbols that are in this space are symbols of the Trinity. The way that Christians got there, however, was not easy on the early church. In the fourth century, the early church had council meetings where the identity of the Godhead was a hot topic. Two particular councils, the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, were major contributors to the church developing the theology of the Trinity that we find evidenced in scripture and find in our faith today. That does not mean that all of the members of the council came together in agreement, nor does it mean that they all left in agreement. Some of them, like Arius, for example, left the council unable to be in agreement with the theological understanding confessed, and he and others were deemed heretics. I don't believe that to mean that Arius was in any way a bad person. I don't believe that to mean that the people that are associated with Arius and agreed with him are bad people either. I believe that it meant that they simply had a different understanding of God. Perhaps they could not find themselves getting to a point that would allow them to understand how God could be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think the people that could not resolve themselves to the theology of the Trinity were well-read in Scripture, good-intentioned, they were well-practiced in the faith, and they truly wanted to know and love God. They let what they thought they understood of what was possible in the world stop them from following where God was leading the faith community and allow that to make them withdraw from the unity that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit invite us into. Even the most blindly faithful Christian might find themselves from time to time trying to wrap their head around the Trinity that we celebrate today. One might come up with earthly objects that may help try to explain how something can be three while also being one. Nevertheless, every earthly example falls short of the Trinity as it is true of God in one way or another. Athanasius, who was present at those early council meetings, wrote what I think to be the closest understanding as we can get to what the Trinity is. He wrote in his rather lengthy creed, we worship one God in Trinity, Trinity in unity neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. He then goes on to say those same lines about a hundred different ways, but it nails down the point that three are one, and one is three. Today, we continue to realize and encounter that trinity each and every day. 
We come together and worship God, the Father that has created us, who has created the air that we breathe, who is the creator of all life. We worship that same God in God the Son, our Redeemer, Jesus the Christ, who has shown us the way of the kingdom of God. In his example, eternal life begins here and now. And we worship that same God, the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit, our sustainer, reigned on us like tongues as of fire on the day of Pentecost, the church was born. And as we see in the scripture reading this morning, the Holy Spirit lives on in us and through us and through the church this day and every day. It is hard to completely understand, but we have the faith in the three in one, and we celebrate that one and three this Trinity Sunday. Nicodemus, who we see in our story today, would sympathize and relate, I think, to many of those early Christians who struggled to understand the Trinity. Not because I think that Nicodemus would not have come to faith in the Trinity, but he could relate to people that are trying so desperately to understand, but struggle to get it. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, an esteemed one at that. He is a leader among the Jewish community. He also happens to be curious, seemingly in a good way, as to the works of this mysterious man from Nazareth named Jesus. This story comes early in John's Gospel, in John chapter 3. In the two chapters previous to this, Jesus does some rambunctious things. Jesus turns water into fine wine at a wedding celebration. Jesus also flips tables and gets a little angry in the temple. Jesus also associated himself with John the Baptist, who we would find to be killed. According to the Pharisees, Jesus has made it quite clear that he might be a bit of a troublemaker. Nicodemus, as a high-ranking Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night, which is curious. If Nicodemus was simply trying to catch Jesus in a trap, as many Pharisees tried to do, he could simply do that in broad daylight. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he is curious about Jesus and thinks that he would like to understand exactly who Jesus is and is willing to put some of his privileges and honors on the line to do it. Now, I like the way that former Mercer professor Dr. Brett Younger describes Nicodemus in a modern way as an eccentric and brilliant church leader, one of us. He says, Nicodemus has complete sets of all the best biblical commentaries and has read all of them. He is a Sunday school teacher every, each and every week. He is the chair of his religion department and is a mover and a shaker in the ministerial association. He has a popular blog called Religion for Grownups. Nicodemus is an expert at articulating the intricacies of religion and detecting the logical shortcomings in other people's faith. If anyone knows the things of God at that time, it is Nicodemus. 
So, when he comes to Jesus with questions, he expects to get clear-cut answers. In the dark of night, putting reputation on the line, the curious and interested Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Much to Nicodemus' chagrin, Jesus responds, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. As the conversation goes on, we see that Nicodemus expects there to be a dialogue that would give him clear answers into who Jesus is in relation to God, but that only leads him to more questions. As Jesus speaks in what I am sure Nicodemus thinks to be riddles, Nicodemus only seems to get more and more confused. Jesus, God the Son, is saying that Nicodemus must be born anew of the water that God the Father spoke over in creation, and he tells him that he must be born of the Holy Spirit and have the kingdom of God live through him. In an ironic turn of events, this humble man from Nazareth, Jesus, talks over the brilliant Pharisee's head, and the brilliant Pharisee realizes that he is in over his head. It leads to verse 9, when Nicodemus' last words appear in this scene. He now humbly asks, How can these things be? Nicodemus, who took a big risk and snuck over to speak with Jesus, fades out of the scene as if he was never there. Jesus goes on to say several deep and powerful things. Jesus speaks of the ascension and exactly who ascends. He tells them that faith in the testimony of Jesus is more important for being born anew than witnessing any signs. He alludes here in chapter 3 through the Moses story that he will be lifted up on a cross and through that we will find eternal life. And we get arguably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. We receive in this scripture so much of what is foundational to our Trinitarian faith. Even if the story gave us only John 3.16, it would still give us a lot. But, as fulfilling as this story is for us, I don't think that it is what Nicodemus came for. As enriching and wonderful as we might find this passage, my guess would be that Nicodemus left that night disappointed with unanswered questions and no resolution regarding his curiosities. In fact, if this story was the only or final time that we see Nicodemus in Scripture, I think we would not be left to think very much of Nicodemus. But, just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit's story does not end here, Nicodemus' story does not end here either. Despite Nicodemus' potential questions left unanswered, he does not stop wrestling in his mind as to who this Jesus might be. Nicodemus' journey with Jesus continues on as the gospel continues on. 
In John chapter 7, many of the Pharisees are crying for Jesus' unjust arrest and punishment. But Nicodemus, in his position of Pharisee power, sticks up for Jesus and says, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they are doing, does it? Though it was not a proclamation of faith or rebirth by any means, here in chapter 7, defending Jesus amongst Nicodemus' peers is certainly a step forward from sneaking to privately see Jesus at night, putting a little bit of his power on the line. As Nicodemus' journey through the Gospel of John continues in chapter 19, we find what I think to be a bold declaration of his discipleship. As Jesus is, after Jesus' crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus' body to be buried. And in verse 39, it says, Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloth, according to the burial customs of the Jews. The prideful yet curious Pharisee of chapter 3 that does not get the answers he wanted turns into one of the disciples who cares for the body of the crucified Christ, putting all of his respect on the line. A story of transformation that is unrivaled. As we celebrate this Trinity Sunday, a day in which we celebrate what can best be described as a holy mystery, we acknowledge that we, like Nicodemus, may question the mysterious God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we, too, might not get the answers that we want. But that does not mean that we stop seeking God. Like Nicodemus, we, too, are on journeys with Jesus. Even in our doubts, we can rest assured that the triune God so loved the world that Jesus was sent so that we may have eternal life. Nicodemus did not let his questions, doubts, and shortcomings keep him from working to preserve the body of Christ. Now, may we too, even amidst our doubts and fears, do the work that preserves the body of Christ in this world, that the Holy Spirit may live through us to be in ministry to all of God the Father's creation. In the name of the triune God. Amen.